a stateside campaign. Just want to remind you of that again, that Mike is available to visit with you after the services at the Welcome or the Information Center, just uh, at, out of the middle doors here in the rear of the auditorium. And several of you signed up this morning, and that's such an encouragement. Thank you for doing that. And if others of you think that you would be available for the last week in July for a mission trip then, uh, please give that some thought. Give that some consideration. The the uh, cost to you would be very, very minimal. It, you might take a little spending money, but pretty much everything is provided. Uh, what we need is souls that are willing to go out onto the pavement for souls. And so if, if you can do that, there'll be training classes, and that training class is June the 19th, and it is at Concord Road. And there is a booklet that you can learn a lot about that, and Mike has those and here tonight. And so uh, just continue to think about that and continue to pray about that. And if, if you're thinking, I've never done that kind of work before, I just don't know if I could do it, uh, this congregation is full of people sitting around you that they went on their first mission trip. And, uh, and so you can visit around you and you'll find several individuals that will walk along with you and your first trip can be a great training opportunity and you'll not be put in a situation that you're not capable of handling. You can, you can be a silent partner. Uh, you can be the, the second person standing at the door as doors are being knocked and, uh, and others can be talking. There's a lot of opportunities for you to get involved and learn how to do this. And so we just want to encourage you to keep thinking about it and praying about it. But even though it is late July... Uh, the need to begin training and making plans and reserving hotel rooms and all that is kind of here. Uh, so, so be thinking about it and, and, uh, and see if that's something that would work in your schedule and in your desire to serve God. We were shocked at the sudden passing of uh, Lawrence Gammon late this week. Uh, let's all be sure and be supportive of Marilyn and her girls uh, in any and every way that we can. A uh, good brother... A good, faithful Christian brother marches on. Uh, you know, his reward is what he's lived for. And it's what I hope all of us are living for. Uh, but that doesn't take away the grief of uh, the loss of, of one from this life and the pain for those of a church family as well as those in his physical family. And let's be mindful and be supportive and helpful of them in every way that we can. As we continue somewhat where we left off this morning, I would like to read to you a quote from Spurgeon. I don't agree with everything that he taught, but a particular paragraph that he wrote one time about the study of God, I thought was very challenging. And it's, it's a little bit of the things that he reveals here, things that I hope that we accomplish this month as we study God. He says, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead. Let that sink in. Do you agree with that? Shouldn't every Christian study the Godhead? The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the doings, and the existence of the great God which he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast 
that all our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects can comprehend, uh, other subjects we can comprehend and grapple with, and then we feel a kind of self-content, and we go on our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn again with the thought, I am but yesterday and know nothing. It's humbling to study God. You and I on this side of eternity, and I don't know about on the other side, but I know on this side of eternity, we will never fully comprehend God. The depths of God are so far beyond because after all, He is the Creator and we are just the creation. The height of God is so much greater than us. How could we ever know except what God has revealed to us? And that's what we want to, to grasp at and that's what we want to study and that's what we want to gain from this month. We don't want to, to contemplate questions that we don't have an answer on this side of eternity, but we do want to know what we can know. What is it that God has told us? And as we look at this, uh, I'd like for you to turn with me over to Romans, the first chapter again. And we looked at a few passages at Romans 1, but now I would like for us to begin with that passage in Romans 1, 19 and 20. And let's use this as, as the reminder of kind of where we've been today and, and where we're going this evening. In Romans 1, 19 and 20, he says, because, that, because what may be known of God, I like that, what is known of God, what do you know about God, is manifested in them. It's shown in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We're without excuse. In other words, there are things that we ought to know about God's eternal power, even though we don't have eternal power. We're trying to comprehend something that we are not. There's things that we ought to know about the Godhead, even though we are human, we are physical, and He is spiritual. There's still things that we ought to know. And so we can say, how can we learn this? And we know obviously we can learn it from the Word of God, but it's interesting here in Romans, the first chapter, he says there's so many of these things that we can learn without even opening up the Bible. We learn it from the things that he has made. In other words, look at creation. Look about us and see the fingerprints of God and we see something that's greater than physical. We see someone with eternal power. We see the Godhead in things that he has made. Now, with that in mind, we think about proofs. And I mentioned to you that we will just look at a few of these, and, or we'll look at these in just for a, a, a few minutes, a few seconds each. But these are proof, these are arguments that there is a God without even going to the Scriptures. With the first there, we see anthropology or anthropological, and that is the study of the fact that Every civilization and every time period has always sought a higher being. In other words, there has to be some kind of proof. Now, I'm not saying this one alone might be sufficient for most people that's looking to prove that there is a God. But this is powerful, especially coupled with others. 
If every society that has ever been has searched for a higher being, that means the search for a higher being is universal. So where did that search come from? Now, what about if in the very beginning of creation, God made every one of us with a hole in our heart, the shape of God, until we find God, we will not be satisfied. There will always be a yearning to look for something greater than man. And so one of the great arguments that there must be a God is the very fact that every civilization that has ever been has sought a God. A second argument is the cosmological argument. And that is what we sometimes call the argument of cause and effect. Uh, you remember, I, I don't remember, I'm not good with time. I don't know if it was a year ago, but you remember we had a lesson on Sunday morning that, that dealt with some of these. And remember I had a ball here. And I said, now if we're going to cause this, the, you know, the effect is going to be that this ball is going to roll across the stage. There has to be a cause that puts that ball into motion. And so I kick it. In other words, I am a great enough cause to create the effect that a ball could roll across this stage. Now, what if I tell you I am a great enough cause, I'm going to push this wall over. And obviously you say, I don't think you are going to push this wall over. Why? I'm not a great enough cause to create that effect. We bring in a, a, a wrecking ball and the crane slings it against this wall. That's a great enough cause to, to move this wall. How great does the cause have to be to move all of this universe into existence and to sustain it? How great does a cause have to be to orbit the earth around the sun? How great does a cause have to be so that every year we have winter, spring, summer, and fall? In other words, how great is the being that can move all of that into effect? Friends, we're talking about things that atheists do not have an answer to. Nothing logical. Evolutionists, it, it, there's no explaining this. As a matter of fact, some would make the argument and they would say, it takes too much belief to believe in God. Now let's think about this for a moment. You can believe that there is an almighty God and then everything else can be explained. How much faith does that take compared to this? You don't believe there's an almighty God and how are you going to have enough faith to say that some way a big bang created all this? A big bang was the cause that put all of this into effect. Brethren, that takes a lot more faith than believing in an almighty God. We see a, a third, and that is the tele, teleological. And the teleos in Greek is, uh, it means end, complete. It's the idea that, that something is finished and it has purpose. And what we usually call this is we call it design. In other words, if, if you look at your hand, your hand is complete. God finished it. That, that is the way He designed it. And so your hand shows design. You know, one of the, one of the hardest things that evolutionists can never deal with is the human eye. Uh, how, how do you explain evolving of, of an eye that is so complex? Or, you know, there have been at least one, if not more, atheist, uh, scientist atheists that have been converted to Christianity because of, in the last decade, the great advancements in DNA. DNA demands an amazing designer. And so, are you going to say that, that all of this just 
mistakenly came about or haphazardly came about or even casually came about. No, all of it demands design. You know, if, if I tell you right now that this morning I had a, I had a, a can of nuts and bolts and, and I just, I had a violent fall in the ground and they smashed to the ground and what do you know, out popped a watch. Isn't that amazing? We, you, you would think, oh, that's cute, preacher. What if I tried to sell you on that? What, what if I did the, oh, I'm going to get angry at you if you don't believe my story. Don't you believe that, that I fell with, with some random pieces of metal and, and this watch just came out? That's what evolutionists are asking us to believe. They're asking us to believe that from an explosion, something came out with design. Something came out with purpose. That has never happened. It doesn't even happen today. Can you imagine lighting a firecracker and, and blowing up something, but instead of it disintegrating, it creates something that is of design. No, design always demands a designer. And so that's a powerful, in my opinion, it's one of the most powerful arguments there are because it's just, it's, it's evident all about us. We are, we, we show design in every element Every bit of our body, our universe, every bit of it shows design. Everything about us has the fingerprints of God. And then there's the ontological uh, argument. And, and this one, if, if you really think about it more, it has a lot more meaning. If you've never heard this one, you're probably going to say, that's weak. But just think on it a little more than just right now because it's not nearly as weak as what it first seems. It really began to be discussed uh, pretty heavily in the, the 11th and the 12th century. And, and it is the fact that we are finite beings and the only way a finite being could comprehend an infinite God is if the infinite God made the finite being with the ability to comprehend Him. In other words, we shouldn't really be able to comprehend God because we have never touched God. We, we've never seen that realm. I mean, think about it. Everything about our existence is bound we are limited in knowledge. We are limited in time. We, we are limited in presence. You and I can only be one place at one time. I know some of you are busy enough. You try to break that rule, but you haven't broken it yet, have you? You're, you're limited in that. But now think about God. God is not limited by any of those things. God has no boundaries around his knowledge. God has no boundaries around His presence. God has no boundaries around His power. You have limits to your power. There's only so much you can pick up. There's only so much you can do in a day. God doesn't know that. Now, just let this sink in for a moment. How can you even imagine a God that doesn't have any kind of limitations when you've never seen anybody that doesn't have limitations? But you have an idea of God. So therefore, there must have been a God that created you in such a way that you could begin to reason that and understand that to some degree. And it's a powerful argument for the existence of God. And then, probably, and I'm just giving you my opinion. My opinion, at least the second most powerful argument, is the moral argument. Uh, the, the very fact that we are moral beings demands that there is a, 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 a almighty God that is a moral God that set this standard of morality not only into existence, but placed it in a sense in each one of us. Because again, you go back to every society, 
And every society has had some kind of understanding that there are certain things that are right and there are certain things that are wrong. In Romans, the, the uh, second chapter in verse 14, he talks about the Gentiles, that they were a law unto themselves. In other words, there were things that God placed within them where they, even without the idea of Christianity being taught, they knew that there were some things that were simply right and they knew that there were some things that were simply wrong. Now, can you imagine trying to explain that through evolution? And again, this is one that really stumps uh, those that, that believe in evolution. Can you imagine trying to explain that one? Well, we evolved from apes and... I guess there was one day that an ape looked over to the other ape and said, we have got to stop lying to each other. I mean, that's just wrong. And the other ape says, I've never thought about it being wrong. And so he convinced the other ape it was wrong and they had baby apes and they convinced their baby apes that it, was, that it was wrong and then eventually that little family evolved into humans and that's where morality came from. Again, you say, that is as silly as can be. See how difficult it is for those who believe in evolution to try to explain morality because no other creatures has a moral compass, but we literally are made with one. Do you realize that everything we've just gone over just now goes back to creation? Everything goes back. When you say, what do I need to know about God? Here is one thing that I hope all of us walk away with. And, and I know that many of us, probably the majority of us by far, would say, well, I already knew that. But I'm hoping we walk away with a stronger appreciation and conviction. And there may be somebody here that, that you say, well, I'm, I hadn't been convinced of that before. I hope tonight you're convinced of this. We've been talking about all day knowing God. You say, well, where should we start if we're going to know God? Where's the beginning point? Now, there are so many things I can't tell you about God. That, that, but if it's here, we know it. Let me tell you one thing we know for sure. Somebody says, what's the starting point? Well, what if you walked into a city and nobody knew the Almighty God? Where would you start? Look with me, if you will, to Acts the 17th chapter. Acts the 17th chapter, that's exactly what happened to Paul. He walks into Athens and nobody knew God. They had all kind of idols built in fancy temples. As a matter of fact, historians say that, that Athens had pretty much turned into a, almost like a vacation place because it was a tourist attraction because that, that the idols and the temples that they built for these idols were so lovely. And, and so let's read this in 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in all these things you are very religious. You see, he's trying to find common ground with him. And that's, that's pretty neat the way Paul does that there. And then he moves on and says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. Pause there. Now you know he's going to preach to them now about the Almighty God. So where is he going to start? No surprise. God who made the world. Pause right there. Where do you start? If we don't understand that God is the creator, we cannot move to point two. We're going to miss some of the most important aspects of God because if I do not think that He is the Creator, I will not submit to Him as His creation. 
When I recognize that I am created by God, it changes my approach to God. Now I'm humble towards God. Now it's easy for me to say he's my father. Now it's easy to say of God the son, you're the Lord of my life. And so notice he says in 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. What did we discuss this morning? Did man make God or did God make man? And where does he begin? He looks around at all these temples with, with idols that man has made and placed inside these temples. And he says, you have built your life and your religion around gods that man has made and placed in temples that man has made. I want to tell you about a God who made you. And you can't make a temple and place this God in it. He made you. Do you know that God? Genesis, the first chapter. If you haven't done this or if you're not aware of this, I challenge you to do this tonight or tomorrow. Do it before you forget it. Turn to Genesis 1 and read the story of creation. It's told in 34 verses. It goes over just a couple of verses in chapter 2. Read those 34 verses and every time, read it out loud to yourself, and every time you see the name God, read with emphasis. Say God's name loud and powerful. And you're going to start seeing a rhythm that I assure you, you may think, now preacher, that's kind of corny. I'm Really? You're going to see a rhythm as you read that. And when you get done, you will never forget what you've just read because it becomes real clear. Someone says, what's Genesis 1 about? Oh, it's a story of creation. Whoa. You do that little exercise and I assure you, you probably won't ever say that again. When somebody asks you what Genesis 1 is about, you will say Genesis 1 is about God. God wanted us to know beyond any shadow of a doubt. I am the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And 35 times in 34 verses, he says his name, God. Now, if you're going to begin to write a book about Jesus, the son of God, where would you begin? Well, if it's the Gospel of John, you remember where he began? About nothing was made without him making it. So even the story of Jesus in the Gospel of John begins with Jesus is the Creator. Okay, so where does this leave us about knowing God? He said, not only are you going to know his eternal power, what we read earlier in Romans 1, but he said, you're also going to know him as the Godhead. I'd like for you to think with me for just a moment. As let's, let's go ahead and advance this next slide. And what I want to do is force myself to move on a little more quickly so I can give you the nutshell in just the next few minutes of, of the rest of this lesson. Thank you. All right, so as, as we go here, here's some things that, and, and if you don't get all this tonight or if at least questions tonight, feel free to write a comment on your card of, of questions that you'd like for us to cover. But uh, also, uh, we'll try to cover some of this, definitely a lot more of this in this month. But here's some things I'd like you to see that we see about God. Who is God? One of the things that we never see in the scriptures is God being an it or God being an object. Each time God's described, he's described in the sense of personhood, in the sense that 
God is described as father. God is described as shepherd. God is described as friend. It's not that God is human because the next description there, John 4 and 24 tells us God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So we're not trying to mislead you and believe, cause you to believe that God is just some kind of super duper human being that has extra powers. That would be completely wrong. But God wants us to see him with an understanding of some of the characteristics of his attributes that we would understand through our characteristics. In other words, when God says that he hears his children, do you think that means that God has an ear? I don't know if spirits have ears, but he hears his children and he knows that if he uses attributes that humans can understand, we can understand it. Keep in mind, God isn't limited in knowledge. It's you and I that's limited in knowledge. And so God is literally limited in some of the things that he can say to us because our understanding is limited. So God is described with the masculine uh, language of being him or he, a person, but also we know that he is a spirit. But then we see that God is one. I'd like for you to notice in, in Deuteronomy 6 chapter, I don't think we have a screen for this, but let me just read this quickly. If you want to turn over to Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter in the Bible in the pew, it's going to be about 165 or 6. In Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, you remember this verse? We sing this sometime, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Monotheism, one. There is one God. We go to 1 Corinthians, the eighth chapter, and, and look in verse four. This is when the meat had been offered to idols and it was brought back in and there was concern. Okay, if we buy this meat in the marketplace, but we know it came from a temple where it had been offered to idols, are we allowed to eat it? They're eventually told, yes, as long as you don't cause the weaker brother to stumble. How can you eat this meat if, if it's been offered to an idol? And, and God is literally gonna teach them here, what's an idol? An idol's not anything. You're not worshiping it. There's no power in an idol. Go ahead and buy the meat. Take it home. Enjoy it. And so notice what he says in 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. But how many gods are there? That there is no other God but one. You see, they would have said, there are many, many gods in this city. And God says, you may have many idols in this city, but there's only one God. But then we also consider that there is Trinity in the Godhead. And throughout this month, you may have noticed on your Sunday bulletin, on Sunday mornings, we're going to study the Trinity of the Godhead as we study God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so we'll be talking more about those roles that each fulfills, but yet they are unified in purpose. They are unified uh, in, in so, so much unified that when Jesus prayed in John the 17th chapter, he prayed that all of us would be one as the Father and Him are one. And so uh, that, that is a beautiful, beautiful uh, description of, of God is that unity. But over these next few slides, I'd like for us to notice this unity. And, and I know we're running out of time and I appreciate your patience. Look at Genesis, the first chapter. In the beginning, this is one in one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, Elohim is the Hebrew word and, and the letters, you might say that should have been capitalized. I meant to go back and capitalize it just so I wouldn't have to explain this, but in Hebrew it would not be capitalized. They don't capitalize letters. But, uh, but, the, uh, but anyway, as, as you see this, what is real interesting about this is the fact that this word in Hebrew 
is plural. But yet it's used with singular verbs and adjectives. Do you see what God is saying right out of the gate? You open your Bible, you come to the first chapter. God, what do you want us to know about you? And he says, I want you to know that I'm the creator. But then in the very first verse, he also says, I want you to start getting an idea of the Trinity. A plural God that's one. Now, if you say, I tell you what I'm going to do this month. The idea of Trinity has always been hard for me to get my mind completely around. And so my goal this month is I'm going to really completely, thoroughly understand the Trinity. Well, you set yourself up for an upset. You're going to have a lot of sleepless nights because I don't think it's possible for physical, for humans to understand the Spirit of God in the sense that He is Spirit and the Trinity. I think we need to know what He teaches. But I think any of us that study thoroughly about God, we're going to have some questions about the Trinity that we simply aren't able to answer. Look at John, uh, sorry, Genesis 1 and 26. Notice the Trinity being mentioned in a pronoun here as he says, Then God said, let us make man in our own image. In Matthew, the third chapter, in verse 16, and this is why the picture on your Sunday bulletin will be the picture that it is this month, is because that is one of those scenes where literally we see each member of the Godhead represented. Now the Father is only represented in the voice that we know that was being spoken at that very time. But do you remember? Uh, let's read this here in 3 and 16. When he, that's talking about Jesus, had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and light upon him and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, there have been some that have tried to say there's only one God and at times the one being takes on multiple forms and so sometimes it's like in, in the, the Middle Ages where an actor would stand on stage and he would have three masks and he would hold up whichever mask of whichever character. And some have literally tried to say, that's the Godhead. Sometimes he, he is God the Father, and other times he switches his mask, and then he, he comes to earth and he's God the Son, and then other times he comes back to earth as God the Spirit. There, there's nothing in the Scriptures that backs up that kind of theology. We, we see them interacting with each other. We see them all three participating in single scenes in the scripture. And this is one example. Another example that I'll just mention quickly is John 14 and 16, where Jesus is saying, I'll pray to the Father. So we have Jesus praying to the Father and he's saying, He's saying to the apostles, he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, and that is the spirit of truth. Notice in 2 Corinthians 13 and 14, we see all three members of the Godhead mentioned. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And we see that again in 1 Peter 1 and 2. The elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. This month we're asking the question, are you open to God? Do you know Him? Do you love Him? The better we can get to know Him, the more we can love Him because it's impossible for you to be close to someone you don't know. It's impossible you say, I really, really love somebody that we're not drawing close to. And so our plea, our hope is that we truly will be people that says, I want to learn more and more about God. I want to know really, what is it that God wants me to know about Him? Understanding the Trinity of the Godhead is important. Also, as we've seen tonight, understanding that God is the creator. That's the first place God would begin.
Do you believe that He made you? And He made you with a purpose. And He designed you so that your soul will never be at home unless eventually is at home with Him for an eternity. I don't know how many of you have ever been homesick. I remember a few times, especially as a child, I was homesick. It's the most miserable feeling in the world. You tell me what's going to be the worst part about hell. We could all probably think up a few things, but I'd offer to you what may be worse than the flames of Hades is going to be the broken spirit that remains homesick for an eternity. Can you imagine your soul never getting to go home? God designed us. God is our creator. And not only did He make us in this earth, but His Son said, I go to prepare a place for you. He's making a home for your soul. Tonight, I need to know that about God because it helps me understand me. And tonight, if we can help you make that reservation for the home that your soul is longing to go to, we would love to help you. If you want to be immersed into Christ or if you want to restore your life with Him, come as we stand and as we sing.